0: Hello. This is Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry, a series of conversations at the intersection of religious faith and public life. I'm your host, Chris Henry. Sometimes on the journey through life, we are blessed to encounter people whose spirits shine with an inner light, people who radiate both grace and strength in equal measure. Judge Sarah Evans Barker needs very little introduction in the communities that we share. Her name is invoked often when we are seeking wisdom, fairness, intelligence, and truth, and we are seeking all of those in these troubled times. Judge Barker was appointed judge of the United States District Court, Southern District of Indiana, in March of 1984. The list of her honors, recognitions, awards, and accolades would take all the time we have together, including the 10 honorary degrees and the Indiana distinctions of serving as the first woman appointed assistant U.S. attorney, first woman named federal judge, and first to be named chief judge, a position she held from 1994 to 2001. Most of all today, though, I am grateful to welcome a friend and a voice of both faith and leadership,
1: Judge Barker. Welcome to Faithful Discourse. Thank you, Chris. I'm honored to have been included in your uh, thinking through this new initiative that you're doing with your podcasts. After that introduction, I think I should just rest my case.
0: <laughs> no, no, we're We're grateful for the conversation and for your time. Judge Barker, the assumption that drives these conversations is that there are important discoveries to be made when we explore the place where faith and public life meet each other. I know you to be a person of deep spiritual conviction and a person who has committed your vocational gifts to the common good. Can you tell me a little bit about how those
1: two commitments were formed in you? Well, any discussion of that sort, of course, has to start with your family, yes. and uh, so it would be with mine. I'm one of six mm. kids. I grew up in northern Indiana, outside of Mishawaka, yes. and. It was a highly principled, uh, deeply religious family. Uh, We observed all the usual practices and traditions. My parents were from Arkansas. Mm -hmm. They were both dyed-in-the-wool Methodists. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you would say that I'm a cradle Methodist, borrowing the phrase that Catholics usually use. (laughs) And uh, we did all of the things coming up through the First United Methodist Church in Mishawaka that young people did with the youth groups and the church camps and singing in the high school choir and Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things. So that's really where it started. But the the church was really um, augmenting what we were getting at home because Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a clear, wonderful... Uh, symbiosis between Mm -hmm. family and church. Mm -hmm. And it spilled over and informed how we acted in the community as well. Mm -hmm. My father was an electrical engineer Mm -hmm. at one of the corporations in Mishawaka, and my mother was a teacher. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were also very active in the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, we were Told when we would leave the house to go to spend the night at a friend's house, you know, like kids do. Yes. Uh, two things: mm-hmm. one, look for ways to be helpful, mm. and the other one is remember who you are. Wow. Yeah. So it started very young, yes. and that sense of responsibility to the larger good and the larger community was very much a part of it. Mm-hmm. We were not; we were instructed in these words. We were not to hide our lights under a bushel yes, yes, be helpful and remember
0: who you are mm-hmm. tell me about how that forming led you to next steps in in education and ultimately in your legal career what was uh, what,
1: what was sort of what were the steps that led in that direction well it has to be said I was really sort of a quirk on the ocean in terms of direction and focus. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm so interested always when young people come to me these days for mentoring and guidance, and they have a very linear view Mm -hmm. of how they get from where they are to where they want to be. And I have to remind them it's not a process of putting tin cans on fence posts and just uh, knocking them down with your BB gun, or it doesn't happen that way. The life is much more fluid and much less predictable much less controllable, Mm -hmm. um, I often have to remind young people that the only straight lines in view are those looking back, Mm -hmm. that you have to have uh, some flexibility, some imagination um, to go into uncertainty and ambiguity uh, without a specific focus. Because that's when opportunities come to you, and if Mm -hmm. you're not coming at them that way, you probably will miss Mm -hmm. some opportunity because it wasn't on your blueprint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you grab at the ring when it comes around. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always, always loved the old Lincoln quote about, I will prepare and make ready and maybe my chance will come. Mm -hmm. And then you look for ways to do things that make your heart sing. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll take you in the direction that you thought, Mm -hmm. uh, but often it takes you in new directions. So the seed that was planted for me to think about going to law school at a time when no women were going to law school and certainly nobody that I knew, nobody in my family, Mm -hmm. which would have been about my junior year in college Mm -hmm. back in the uh, 60s, um, was planted by a graduate student counselor who was advising student government, Mm -hmm. and I was active in student government, Mm -hmm. and we were working on something. And she said, not with any intentionality, not as a counseling matter, but just uh, as a comment from a friend, Mm -hmm. I think you should think about going to law school. Mm. And if she had said, I think you should think about being an astronaut, Mm. it could not have been received as more far-fetched by me than that was. But it started a process of mm. of exploration and inquiry and a very private journey to see if this felt right. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in a position to discuss it with anybody mm. till I had sort of seen if this was uh, just an embarrassing overestimation mm. of my abilities or something that sounded right. Mm. And the more I got into it, the more resonance there was, the more it seemed right. Yes. And then opportunities uh, unfolded in ways I never imagined mm-hmm. when I applied for and became the first woman assistant U.S. attorney back in uh, the late—it ni- was the end of 1972, right after I'd gotten married and moved here from Washington, where I had lived before. I didn't know there were no women mm-hmm. before me. Wow. Yeah. I, so that, that wasn't my doing. Mm-hmm. That was because somebody had made the decision that it was time to move past the barrier, mm-hmm. and that was Stanley Miller, for whom I've always been grateful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator Percy, before that, gave me an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, there were just many people along the way that made things happen that basically took advantage of wherever I was, mm-hmm. because it was not—certainly wasn't my doing. Mm-hmm. And so it was with uh, becoming the United States Attorney. That was Senator Luger and President Reagan— and then from the US attorney spot it's not too far a leap to become a judge. Mm-hmm. And again it was Senator Luger and uh President Reagan. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful to all the people. And the the good things that have happened to me didn't stop then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been a life of rich blessings.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Well and and
0: a life that has blessed so many um I've I've been in the city of Indianapolis for five years, and yours is is one of those names that just keeps coming up in terms of impact um, on such a broad array of um, of institutions in the life of our city and state, and most of all, you know, we are we're looking for people who are wise. We're looking for people who you know bring that sense of fairness, um, and and you offer that, and in a time when we need it so badly. Um, I recently had the opportunity, and thank you for that, to read some reflections that you had written on the occasion of your 40th anniversary Mm -hmm. um, as a judge, Um, and I was struck really by two themes. Um, I was struck by your themes of gratitude, um, Mm -hmm. which really were the foundation of your reflections, um, but also by the theme of hopefulness, and I wonder how for you— as you reflect, I, I love your, your thought about the straight line backwards. I think about the Kierkegaard quote that life must be lived forward but can only be understood backward. Mm-hmm. Um, so our gratitude, I think, is rooted in what has been. But I think what, um, what I'm most moved by in your reflections and in the conversations we've had is that persistent sense of hopefulness mm-hmm. because I don't know that we have enough of that um, in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do gratitude and hope coexist for you or feed on one
1: another? Well, they they clearly do coexist. Um, You know, I've never been uh, either inclined or permitted to take myself terribly seriously. (laughs) And um, when you've lost your sense of humor about things, then it all gets pretty gray. Mm -hmm. And in my work, um, you could say that I'm fed a steady diet of a lack of hopefulness, that people have worked themselves into Situations that are very hard for them to extricate themselves and very hard for society to sort of mm-hmm. absorb and tolerate and try to correct um, mm-hmm. along the way, but even in those sort of dark and dire circumstances, you can find the things that uh, that make you smile mm-hmm. and uh, basically create a common tie among people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I said in those remarks, and I, it, it sort of answers your question, uh, and that is that I do believe that all people are basically alike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've come to see it and believe it. Mm-hmm. And when that's true, and there are these common denominators for everyone, mm-hmm. then, you know, finding the points of uh, hope and uplift and uh, to get move past uh, the, the weariness of problem-solving, and a steady diet of problems uh, is really part of the survival
0: uh, Mm
1: -hmm. strategy. So many times, you know, I'm made hopeful by what defendants say and what litigants say because uh, even the the people we think have no redeeming societal value do. Mm -hmm. And they've usually got a lot of work to do on themselves to get out of the situation they're in. But they're trying to do it the best they can. Mm -hmm. And even in court, sometimes we'll look at at each other, the defendant and I, across the room, and we'll see something that happens or something will get said and we'll both be sort of chuckling about it. (laughs) So even in those Uh circumstances, I am really entertained uh, often by gets said in my presence as a trial judge. One of the things I love about my work is that it's live theater. Mm -hmm. And so all of this plays out before you. You don't have to just read about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you don't have to um, do anything except sort of make sure that it happens within the boundaries of the legal proceeding. Mm -hmm. But then what witnesses say from the witness stand, what defense counsel or prosecutors say or what jurors tell you as a reason they can't serve or something it's just uh you couldn't make it up yeah, really yeah. and uh it gives you a lot of reason to think that uh, we we really are pretty much all alike
0: yeah so. i think that's um for, for me, both in reading your work and in our conversations, the, the one of the themes that keeps emerging is humanity, um, our common humanity, our shared humanity. And of course, that's a tenet of our faith as well, mm-hmm. that um, created in the image of God, we mm-hmm. are all siblings and therefore have that same mm-hmm. um, innate human spirit placed within us. Um, and you really uh, find a way to honor that in each person you encounter. Um, I was so struck by the letters that you included in mm-hmm. those those same remarks uh, from, from folks, but two folks you had sentenced, yes. um, who were essentially thanking you for punishing them, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, it, it made me think about another word that is theologically loaded, but I think also at home in the legal practice, and that word is redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been your experience of redemption in the
1: work that you do and enable? Well, I need to clarify. Yes. Um that those notes that I received and uh, whatever pats on the back I receive are not specifically in response to my having sentenced okay. them because yes. uh, nobody really likes to be on the <laughs> the receiving end of a sentence. Yeah, and right. in our federal system, some of the sentences mm-hmm. are quite draconian. Mm. But... It's, I think because they sensed I was trying to do it in a compassionate yes. way, yes. that I listened to them, I gave them time, mm-hmm. I responded to the things that they told me mattered to them. Mm-hmm. And then I encouraged them. I tried to make them move beyond whatever uh, disillusionment they had, a sense of uh, loneliness and mm-hmm. um the, the um, being at odds with society and their families and so forth to for them to sense the hope mm-hmm. and for them to sense that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And so there are, th- there are reasons for them to work on redemption. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it w- I think it was probably because we sort of connected on those things that I had not given up on them. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to tell people that, that... You know, this is a rough patch, and it's not going to be easy for a while, but you've got some work you can do, and it will bring you to a better place. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are afflicted by huge problems, problems, Chris, if you and I had had to confront them, we wouldn't have done much better than they did, right. but we were spared yes. a lot of those problems. So problems of addiction mm-hmm. and violence, abuse, neglect, poverty, Um You really do wonder sometimes how the grass grows through concrete because the fact that they have even survived some of the pressures against them is a miracle. So their lives have been hard. They're going to be hard for a while, but they don't have to be hard forever, and that's what I try to tell them. Lots of times we connect on that. Mm-hmm. The uh, federal system has the advantage of being able to slow down the process so that mm-hmm. there is time for that kind of colloquy and that kind of uh, thoughtfulness, that sort of preparation mm-hmm. before I ever take the pinch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state court judges uh, have the same impulses, the same desires, mm-hmm. but they're saddled with such a heavy caseload mm-hmm. that they just don't have the opportunity to to invest that mm-hmm. sort of grace, I'll Mm say, uh, into the the occasion. You should come see a sentencing yeah, sometime, Chris. I'll, yeah. I'll get you on the that. schedule.
0: No, I'd love to do that. And and I've I've heard from those who have witnessed your sentencings. And I think one of the things, and, and it's something you've said to me before as well, that um, I don't know why it had not occurred to me that uh, context and circumstances of one's life can be a factor um, in the work that you do and the decisions mm-hmm. that you make. And I'm not sure that to the lay person on the outside, that's mm-hmm. always... Is clear that um, you are not only permitted, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're compelled yes. uh, to take into account mm-hmm. the the context and circumstances mm-hmm. of one's life.
1: Yeah, um, that's uh, we use our sentencing guideline regimen, and the first paragraph of the statute that guides our exercises of discretion says that we have to take into account the nature and circumstances of the offense. Mm-hmm. Then the very next thing on the same line mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the history and characteristics of the defendant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's a lot of um, time and attention that's paid to going back to sort of recreate the factors that brought this person mm-hmm. to this this tough spot mm-hmm. that they're, mm-hmm. they're in. The federal system is quite thorough, and also it's heartening mm-hmm. that an institution spends that amount of time mm-hmm. uh, to pull it together. I was reading the, a Martin Luther King quote that was mm-hmm. talking about the church, and one of the things that you had indicated that you were thinking about in inviting me here was to discuss the the church's role yes. and the community's role and so forth. And I I don't have the quote precisely, but it's something to the effect that the the church is not the the master or the servant of the state, but the conscience mm-hmm. of the state. Yes, and as the conscience of the state, it informs how judges mm. dispense justice. Mm-hmm. It's very much a part of what we do that we talk about due process and we talk about rights and responsibilities, but it comes back to doing things in a way that conforms to an appropriate sense of uh, civic responsibility Mm -hmm. and feeds the conscience Mm -hmm. of the whole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really, and you saw also in my remarks that I was was hopeful about the courts and the courts' Mm -hmm. ability to... Mm -hmm help our country through this time of polarization and stress and Mm -hmm. restlessness, where resentments seem to be the order of the day from one faction towards another faction. And the courts have this very important role to play. And it's not just in, you know, achieving some sort of uh, inchoate sense of justice, but it's it has to do with how you do that mm-hmm. and assigning time to do it mm-hmm. and bringing people together so that it can happen, that you become a bridge yes. that can bring the elements together and mm-hmm. allow you all to move forward in pursuit of the common mm-hmm. good.
0: Yes. You you mentioned your uh, your background, having been a cradle Methodist and raised by Methodist parents, and I, I happen to know that you continue to participate as an active member of a Methodist church, and so I do. it is it, it is not just that you hold a personal faith, but that you exercise, live out that faith in the context of a church community, and I wonder how, for you, has that been a, a sustaining um uh, gift to you in your vocational work has that been? How, how does your participation in the life of a faith community um, impact the work that you do um, in any in any specific
1: or general way? Well, first of all, it gives me a community, yes, and it gives me a community. They all know what I do for a living, but mm-hmm. it's not the most important thing yes. in our relationships. Yes. and it's been a longstanding. Uh, connection with our little church congregation. Mm-hmm. And the, the people are the thing that always make it important and bring you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read someplace, I always like this, that you go back Sunday after Sunday not because of where you are necessarily on the ups and downs of your own faith, but because your being there can be helpful to somebody else, yes. and yes. you don't know. Yes. You don't know. So, Even when you think, oh, I don't need it today, or oh, I can't do this again. Yes. You do it because of the sort of unknown influence that you might have mm-hmm. on somebody else. So the community always mm-hmm. uh, has been... and. Uh, my husband is also active and mm-hmm. involved, and a really first-rate Sunday school teacher. Ah, yes. um, we all need those. So uh, that makes it more fun. We raised our kids in the church. They've they are all religious, but they go. They they've all gone a different, mm-hmm. slightly different direction, which mm-hmm. is just fine with us. Mm-hmm. Um, follow your your path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's. The short answer that I've now made long is that it it's the people, yeah. but the other thing, and I've thought this often it gives me language mm-hmm. that when you you know you sort of downshift into a different mode of thinking and a different mm-hmm. language that you use when you're talking about religious things, that the conversations you have about religious ideas and the sermons you hear and so forth. Aren't exactly the kind of conversation you would have if you were riding the subway mm-hmm. uh, in New York or something. Uh, that it's it's a different kind of language, but it's it's taking you someplace that is unique to the church. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought, you know, in my public life, I've had to make many speeches, mm-hmm. and even my informal remarks at a a sentencing hearing or a court proceeding or something, they they have to have a certain element of what I'll call uplift. Mm. Yes. And the capacity to find words that do that yeah. has been enhanced
0: mm. by
1: my uh, having access mm. to that language on a steady basis. Mm. I also like to read mm-hmm. in these directions. You told me one, recently that... Uh, Marilyn Robinson is one of your favorite yes. authors. Yes. I yes. would say your author favorite. theologians. Yes. Um she is mine as well. I've read all those rich books that she's written, starting with Gilead. Yes. And uh I've I read I wonder if you've read this. We don't need to get into a book review necessarily, but there was a <laughs> when President Obama was in the yes. White House, he had a uh an extended conversation with her that was reported in the New York Review of Books right. or something like right. that. Yeah, I think he interviewed her, right? Yeah. And so even when she speaks in that way, it's elevating. Mm-hmm. So I like to read the stories and the way other people deal with these ideas. Because mm-hmm. we're all really dealing with sort of common ideas. Mm-hmm. And that is how do you touch the soul of another person Yes. for whatever purpose it is that you have been permitted to go there.
0: Yes. Yes. The the word that comes to mind for me is reverence that um the the church holds a place of reverence that may not exist in any other, you know, that when when you walk into that space, when you share that community, when you listen to those words, there's a there's an overriding reverence for the
1: sacred, um mm-hmm. for what matters the most. I just add a quick third to your Yes. Your question about the, the church, the importance of the church relationship. And that is, um, even in our little church, we hold a variety of views mm-hmm. about everything mm-hmm. about the Bible and literalism, about mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. about just about everything. But it's heartening that we're all headed in the same direction. Yes. We yes. are all intentional in the same way. We, we have the same destination and by that I don't mean heaven <laughs> I just mean to make life richer yeah. or fairer mm-hmm. um, to understand mm-hmm. it better. Mm-hmm. So um, that matters too because you you're with fellow travelers
0: right right. Well, and that sort of leads to a question I want to ask, which which has to do with institutions. And the word that I keep hearing around institutions is the word fracture, Mm. Um, that the institutions that we have leaned on, trusted, built upon, are in some ways um, fractured, broken, that there's a a fissure, a a breakdown of those institutions. Um, It feels to me as if at least one of the ways that that is happening is institutions are becoming bifurcated by the polarization that it's taken, taken over every part of our lives. And so, whether it's the neighborhood we live in, the church we attend, the gym we go to, um, it, it all seems to be um, filtered through our identity um, of a, a political ideology or, or theology or, or something like that. So, I think we have discussed before, we sort, sort of share an interest in institutions that bring together a diversity of viewpoints. That doesn't seem to be um, in vogue. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be popular among lots of folks in our time. So institutions are taking a lot of criticism. Um, Much of it is deserved, I think, in recent years. But what do you see as sort of the the role of our existing institutions? You've described some of that in in, in the church. Um, And then how do we who care for them, care about them,
1: um, reimagine or rebuild them? Mm -hmm. Well, I think these are hard problems. I, I wish I had answers. I wish I even had clarity about Mm -hmm. some of them, but I I perceive the same things you do. Uh, I think people are going to have to try to work a little harder than we have in the past to decide what kind of people we want to be Mm -hmm. and what kind of communities we want to live in and what do we want for our country. Mm -hmm. And I think almost everyone would say we don't want what we have right now. That's right. That, and it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum or what your particular views are, but everybody agrees this is not working. This is not right. And so uh, to create the bridges between the groups and the coalescing values that bring us together uh, requires patience. And um, we've lost patience uh, with each other. We seem to be more focused on the correctness of our own personal views rather than uh, what difference they make. I mean, if my views strongly held are a barrier Mm -hmm. to the entire body politic moving forward, my views have to be reexamined too. I hope you'll reexamine yours Mm -hmm. if yours are different, but mine have to be looked at in terms of where do I need to shift or change or say things differently. So just on matters of inclusion Mm -hmm. and fairness, basic fairness, allowing people to live whole lives of their own choosing uh, with Mm -hmm. maximum amounts of personal discretion and opportunity and so forth. I've benefited from all of those things, but I know Mm. most people have not. Mm. And I have to live my life in a way that leaves room for them to grow Mm and to change, and to enjoy the same benefits that, that I have enjoyed. Mm. So I worry because there are not easy mm. settings uh, in which we can discuss things like values and shared right. values right. and ethics. We've kidded ourselves to think that we can make it in life on the basis of individual talents mm. and resources and sort of going it alone, right. it's not going to work, and it hasn't worked, mm-hmm. and it won't work in the future. So I worry that the old settings in which we used to be able to do this sort of thing, I recognize there were there were some underneath sides to these mm-hmm. groups, but this, the old civic clubs, yes. the, the Kiwanis and the Rotary, they're still there, but they're not no. Participated in like they used to be, That's right. and we've ridded out this kind of values laden discussion in lots of other settings. We we've mm. decided we can't have it in the schools because it's polarizing, mm. too many views and too many strongly held views. Mm. Um, so the usual settings for having that sort of conversation and that sort of opportunity are are disappearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did read an article recently about the failure of universities to teach ethics Mm -hmm. and that uh, the author noted that there are only two or three schools that still require ethics as part of the undergraduate curriculum. Uh, Notre Dame is one. Georgetown is one. Well, you can see Mm -hmm. where that interest comes from. But it used to be that in order to graduate, you had to have some class, some coursework, some setting in which... Those things were explored, and we've wrung them out of our society. They're just not there. So all the ways in which we would be able to have these discussions uh, seem to have been um, some—we've thrown them over. We've we've thrown the baby out with the bath, Uh, and until we reconstruct some ways to do that. I was Mm -hmm. talking to one of our kids. All of our kids are out of college, and— married and have their own kids now, but we were talking about when they were in college and one of them said, you know, the opportunity to create the kinds of friendships you do in college yes. never comes around again. That's right. And it's the function of time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and mm-hmm. having those long extended yeah. opportunities to just hang around and talk to each other and listen to each other. Absolutely. So time... Yes. Um, is a necessary ingredient.
0: Yeah, I think about um, we can't expect people to know how to engage in civil discourse if we don't teach them how to engage Mm. in civil discourse at any point. Um, the greatest gift I was given in high school was stumbling into speech and debate my freshman year mm-hmm. and um, stumbling into a teacher who kind of would not let me drop that class, though I tried to um, when I was intimidated by the, the intelligence and, mm-hmm. and kind of uh, put-togetherness of my, of my classmates. She said, you need to stick with it. And the gift speech and debate gave me was you were required to understand your opponent's argument mm-hmm. as well as they did, um, and to understand it in its best possible light. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think about, um, you And know,
1: to give it when required. That's right. And switch to switch sides. To switch yeah. sides
0: and argue the negative and argue the affirmative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it also gave me the chance to read John Stuart Mill, and I think the, um, his wisdom around if you and I disagree— and you convince me of the rightness of your perspective, then you've given me this wonderful gift because you've moved me from error to truth. Mm -hmm. If you and I disagree and at the end of our debate, our argument, our discussion, I am continue to be convinced of the rightness of my perspective and the wrongness of yours. You've given me this wonderful gift because I now understand you and your perspective mm-hmm. better than I did at the beginning. And I, I just, I'm not sure the places, I think what you're saying is exactly right. I'm not sure where we are engaging in that mm-hmm. kind of good faith
1: discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we also have to all of us all of us uh mm-hmm. step back and realize that a lot of what gets under our skin doesn't matter yeah yes that there are when i see what some people file lawsuits over mm. uh i'm mystified that they would invest so much mm. it's not to you know the courts have important work to do but i'm talking about those times when you can see that it's just a grudge mm-hmm. Carried forward and made larger mm-hmm. instead of trying to figure out some way to reconcile the parties. Mm-hmm. And not everything, that old saying about I'm going to make a federal case out of it, you know, <laughs> yeah. not everything needs to even be pursued mm-hmm. in terms of your own internal right. attitudes towards it. You've mm-hmm. got to learn to let some things go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized that there have been people who've been victimized a lot. Oh and dealt with unfairly, and it's very hard for them to be victimized again and not feel like they need to finally vindicate Mm -hmm. their own personal integrity and their own interests. I understand that, Mm -hmm. but I'm talking about something else where Mm -hmm. somebody says something in an offhanded way and makes you mad. Uh, It's part of your spiritual development to try to figure out how to maybe laugh at yourself. Maybe the person was right. Mm -hmm. Um, Ken likes to tell me when I come home with my feelings hurt after somebody's criticized. And, you know, in my business, everybody criticizes what you decide one way or another. Mine too. Yeah. (laughs) We're a lot alike, Chris. (laughs) But when I come home, you know, feeling sorry for myself, Ken will often remind me, oh, Sarah, we have to learn from our enemies
0: too. Mm -hmm. I'm struck by your... Comment that we need time to think about what kind of people and what kind of society we want to become, and I do think the pace of life, the um, the the constant onslaught of information, um, whether it's true or not, um, that is accessible literally at our fingertips does make um, wisdom and discernment, those gifts of the Spirit, um, much more difficult. And the ability to to turn off the noise every once in a while. Um, I'm preparing to preach on uh, Jesus' invitation, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens. And if you think about what, what wearies us and what are the he- heavy burdens we mm-hmm. carry, uh, you don't have to look far. And I think we're describing some of yeah, that
1: weariness. exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, when when it's in us, to be defensive and to leap to the bait Mm -hmm. um, and to feel the pressures in a personal way that maybe aren't intended to be personal. Um, Religion doesn't cause the conflict, but religion becomes another way of being at odds. So it's part of our encampment Mm -hmm. syndrome where we, we stay with our group and we don't make an effort to sort of move beyond those those boundaries. But it's not religion yes. that's causing the conflict. Yes. Underneath the religion, for those who study comparative religions, and I only dabble, mm-hmm. but for those who study it, you can see underneath it all those principles and tenets are just about the same. I I have always thought that Karen Armstrong, mm-hmm. in her writing... Mm-hmm it's such clear writing, and Mm -hmm. she's such a thoughtful, intelligent person. And when she got an award for something, it wasn't a Nobel Prize, but it was like that, and a money gift came with it, she set out to demonstrate Mm -hmm. and to enhance the importance of the Ten Commandments Mm -hmm. and the underlying commonalities Mm -hmm. among all religions. And she... She is the one who's written recently about compassion mm-hmm. and how every and it wasn't the ten commandments it, it was um the golden rule her, her golden rule uh, that she could find that explication of a rule of life in every religion right. and it translates into compassion. Right. Right. So that's what I mean yes. uh, it it's the under it, it's it, the infusing value in all religions, mm-hmm. and yet we quarrel at the surfaces about differences that do not matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, who really thinks it matters with respect to certain ritual differences mm-hmm. in how you do things? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to create enemies, but um, how you dress, mm-hmm. how you form your prayers— mm-hmm. How you go about expressing um the 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 various um important rituals of your faith right um so i, I just think religion sometimes becomes the the uh, cover for um for an untruth that it's it's mm-hmm. a, a disagreement we have all the way down and it's not a disagreement all the way down it's a right. very superficial disagreement.
0: It would be hard for me to choose my, my favorite Marilyn Robinson sentence, but this one would be in the running. She writes, Nothing true can be said about God from a posture of defense. Nothing true can be said about God from a posture of When we are defending God, um, we're, we're putting ourselves in a place we were never meant to occupy.
1: She also said, because I wrote it down in my notes, that resentment makes meaningful public life so dif- difficult. Yes, resentment. And as a person in public life mm-hmm. and seeing how resentments flow mm-hmm. through the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the body politic, of that Marilyn Robinson, mm-hmm. she's one smart woman. So <laughs> aren't we glad to be able to read her <laughs> yes, stuff? Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe on that, on that topic, and I'm um, so grateful for your time, but at, at our recent discussions, we've turned often to the topic of leadership. Um, I wonder for you, what does moral or ethical leadership look like? And perhaps more on the point, um, where should we be looking, those of us who who want leaders, um, those of us who want leaders whose voices we can trust and who we can seek to emulate? Um, where should we be looking for those who would shine a light beyond the current chaos and division?
1: Well, it's a really good question because we need those people. And Cultivating them is one problem and recognizing them is another problem. Mm. Um, I think we've got to find people who understand to their bones that they don't exist for themselves alone, that they are married up to something bigger yeah. and larger because it makes them larger themselves. It inla- It is an enlarging influence. And... Um, so, of course it it implies a level of integrity, um, mm-hmm. a sense of compassion that we just spoke of, uh, inclusiveness, uh, an ability to move beyond boundaries and so forth uh, and then some adherence to uh, principles that mm-hmm. are tried and true mm-hmm. that that are have been true forever the mm-hmm. the basic principles of generosity and intelligence and living whole lives out of a sense of responsibility uh, to others. Um, So to find people who satisfy those criteria leads me to want to adopt the old adage about pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see See it. it. And I know when I see those leaders. And then I can usually reason back from that mm. personality. What is it about that person yeah. that makes that person impactful and special and uh, and a true leader, a person who has a magnetic pull on others simply by the way they act or what they say or how they live their lives. Mm. And It does not have to be in public view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an integrity that um, goes in every direction in every setting. Mm. Uh, and so when you say about somebody, he's the real deal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's that. Mm-hmm. So there are those people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we have made it really hard for people to want to come forward, That's right. to live a life in the public view and take on the the criticisms and the heat of living out that example uh, in public view because other people for other reasons who maybe aren't as well developed in terms of their own ethics and integrity and their own moral leadership want to tear it down rather than uh, follow. So I think we don't have a dearth of leaders. Mm. We have a dearth of willingness Mm -hmm. to operate at that level where it's obvious and conspicuous. And so for the rest of us, I mean, we don't all have the same gifts. We can't all be the leader. But it's incumbent on us to empower that sort of personality mm-hmm. to do the hard work and to reinforce and support. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the the great blessings of my life is that I have been supported by many close friendships. Yes. And those friendships have mattered in good times and bad. Yes. And... Uh, We don't consult. We judges don't consult anybody else about our decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I can call Mm up one of my best friends and say, what do you think about that? Should I do that? How would I do on that one? (laughs) So the work has to stand alone. Mm -hmm. But just knowing that whatever is decided, the good faith is imputed to me. Mm -hmm. And my best efforts Mm -hmm. are imputed to me Mm -hmm. that people expect and can assume that i did this the best i could in the right way that just knowing that means they're sort of paddling the boat alongside you mm-hmm. you know yes. so i really believe we have wonderful leaders we just have to find them and encourage them and empower them and make it possible for them to use their best talents mm-hmm.
0: When I, was a, when I was an undergraduate, um, Nan Cohane was the president of Duke University, and right after I graduated, she retired, um, and she wrote a book on the art of leadership, and mm-hmm. she takes Nelson Mandela as sort of her case study in leadership, and she describes how early in his life he witnessed the village chiefs of his childhood, um, and they would watch the shepherds, and the shepherds were rarely, despite sort of Common interpretation now, or or the way that you know your illustrated Bible might might show it, um, the shepherds are rarely those who are out in front of the sheep, beckoning the sheep forward. Almost always, the shepherd are behind the herd. Uh, pushing the sheep to where they want to go. And and she says Mandela saw that um, the shepherd leads in ways that the sheep don't even know they're being led mm-hmm. because they're really being encouraged from underneath and from behind. And so I think your your reference to, there are leaders um, wh- whose names we will never know, whose stories we will never read, um, mm-hmm either by choice or or circumstance, um, who are doing extraordinary exceptional work. um, And often that means coming alongside and and sort of buttressing from behind and underneath Mm -hmm. the the good as it moves forward.
1: And I think you have to keep your eyes open for unlikely leaders Uh, because we stereotype people. And we like the ones that are charismatic and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. good-looking who are – Funny um and socially uh successful in that way, and we mm-hmm. we think that that's the paradigm for right. for leaders and There are wonderful, exquisite leaders who don't follow any of the mm-hmm. usual forms, yeah and once given the opportunity to do what they could do and do well and do best, mm-hmm. everyone would benefit from yeah. that, yeah, so the quiet person who hangs back and you at the committee meeting on Wednesday nights. You forget to ask because mm-hmm. it was you only had an hour for this meeting, and you had all these agenda items, and you had to get through them. And all in favor, say aye. All opposed, say nay. And the person comes and goes, and never mm. is called upon. Mm-hmm. If you can slow it down, if you can give them a chance. Actually, I'll, I'll speak well of Ken Barker, whom. I love, of course, but he's very good at this. When he's uh, the chair of a committee in our little church, I told you that uh, much. As we love everybody, and we do uh, there, if you got too far <laughs> below the surface, it would be rife with with differences, yes. not disagreements, yes. just differences, differences in the sure. way you see the world. Huh. But when Ken is chairing a meeting, uh, and we've talked about this, he's yeah. he operates, you know, in a different sort of time frame. He's not practicing mm-hmm. law and so forth. Mm-hmm. But he says, I never hold a meeting without calling on everyone. Mm -hmm. And even I just say, how do you feel about this? Or what are you thinking about Mm -hmm.
0: that?
1: Just to draw them into it. And that's when you find the the hidden jewels. Yes. What a wonderful example (laughs) for all of us.
0: This conversation has been a tremendous gift, Judge Marker. Thank you for for your time, for your leadership, for your friendship, um, for the ways in which you shine that light um, for others to follow. And it's been a gift to become your friend, and I hope Mm -hmm. we'll be friends for many years to come. And most of all, just grateful for uh, that you are in this world doing what God placed you in this world to do. I'm grateful for you. And thank you all for listening. We invite you to subscribe, to share our podcast with a friend, and to let us know what you would like to hear in future episodes. I look forward to continuing the conversation on the next Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry. Until then, take care of each other.